Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Labor Day. It's time to get outdoors and make your holiday weekend one to remember. And there's no better place to get ready than Cabela's. Get 30% off all Cabela's camp kitchens, furniture, and cots. $100 off a Ruger American Bolt Action Rifle with Vortex Scope Combo after sale and mail-in rebate. 15% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. And $20 off Winchester USA bulk handgun ammo. Hurry in and gear up for Labor Day weekend at Cabela's. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is another one of the Division Capsule podcasts, so that means off-season review and season preview. This is the Central Division with two friends of the show, Dan Feldman of NBC's Pro Basketball Talk and Nate Duncan of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. We go through the notable moves of the off-season. All three of us are CBA dorks, so plenty to talk about there. And then a preview of the season to come, which is a little bit different with this division, just because some of it's a little certain, some of it's very uncertain, so we work our way through that and also talk about the playoff picture a little bit more broadly. For those of you who enjoy timestamps, you can certainly check those out. There will be in the description. And this episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. So you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals for free, and that includes free shipping. It is a product that I really appreciate and support had some last night and here we go on to the podcast thanks so much for coming on you start every podcast that way actually i think like you do like your own intro like that you record separately and then you start with that uh i like that it took you two years to realize that but yes i do <laughs> well i haven't been on in a while to make the comment i i made the observation some time ago thanks for having us i'm going to say much more graciously than nate did in, in his <laughs> intro. <laughs> so I've been starting these with with a pretty basic question. In the Central Division, who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? Well, I think the Cavs, it would be hard to argue that at least at this moment they didn't. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, I guess you want to say they got Dunleavy, but I think that he just in terms of fit and age is probably a downgrade, just an overall talent from Della Vadova. And then now with these Mo Williams retirement rumors and then the fact that kind of their last hope ty lawson which was a kind of an ugly last hope to have to begin with is now signed with the kings they're really looking pretty ugly at backup point guard uh so you'd have to say the Cavs, and then you also just i mean they didn't get worse in terms of personnel but just love being a year older lebron being a year older uh J.R. smith still not quite in the fold yet either so you have to imagine that they might look a little bit worse 
next year when they get to the playoffs than they were this year when, they, of course, they won the championship. Yeah, to play devil's advocate on this on that one in a second, uh, I went really back and forth on the Cavs, and then the two the two things that stood out to me of why they might be better. One is Kyrie Irving being healthier. I think we, a lot of us expected him to make the jump he made in the playoffs, especially in the finals. Uh, Throughout more of the regular season, it didn't happen. Maybe that'll happen this year. He's still very young and could just really emerge as you know, a superstar from just a regular star. Uh, the other reason I think they might be better is improved chemistry, where this, this feeling, this great feeling of winning the title maybe carries over, and there's not as much bickering about the coach, not as much bickering about what Kevin Love brings, whether he should be traded, maybe just a little more comfort because they all feel good about themselves coming off the title. Yeah, I, I would think I think in the regular season they could well actually win more games. I was more thinking about, and I don't usually think this way in these sort of season previews, but this is a team that we're focused on what their ultimate destiny is in the playoffs, and I could see them maybe not being quite as good in the playoffs, uh, especially if LeBron can't repeat that otherworldly finals performance that he had uh, in 2016. So I, I think the other teams are a little bit a little bit easier. I would say the Cavs got a little bit worse just because I think Del Vadova was an important depth piece for them, especially considering Kyrie's history. To me, Milwaukee unambiguously got better just because they I agree. they added guys yep. and didn't lose anybody. The Pistons got better because the only guy they lost is Tolliver, and they added a lot of a lot of players. And then so what that leaves is Indiana is legitimately fascinating to me because. I think it would be un- pretty much unanimous among general people that they got better, but I think at least Nate and I would probably say they got better by less than most think. Oh, no, I think they actually got worse. Wow. I-, I think they will win less than 45 games this year because I just think that they the pieces don't fit together. I think the defense could be poised to take a major step back. I think the coaching downgrade is really going to hurt them, and I, d- I still don't think – that this is an above-average offense either. I mean, they were 24th, I think, last year in offense and third in defense. I think they would be very hard-pressed, both with the loss of Mahimi and the loss of Vogel and the loss of George Hill to repeat anywhere close to there defensively. And then I don't see the offensive upgrade as being above really league average. I sort of think they got better, although until you like... I mean, that was just my gut reaction. I sort of forgot they won 45 games and they were that good last year, so maybe not. But just the idea that they traded a first-round pick for Thaddeus Young, uh, and I don't necessarily think that deal was great value, but Thaddeus Young's obviously more ready to contribute next season. You know, just And I agree with you guys, obviously, that going from, from George Hill to Jeff Teague is a downgrade, even if the fit is a little better for what they want to do. But I think just the fact that you add Thaddeus Young, who's a solid player for what would have been a rookie who's unlikely to contribute, that points toward getting better right now. Uh, and Miles Turner's development, I think, could go a long way, too. I think losing Jan Mahimi is going to hurt them more than some think, especially because mm-hmm. Al Jefferson is a good player, but he doesn't fill that kind of replacement mold. He's more of a, in this system, at least especially considering the weakening of their perimeter defensive talent, if Turner is hurt or in foul trouble, Jefferson is not really the right guy to step up, whereas when you had Mahimi there, you could make it work with the two of them. Basically, you knew you were going to get close to 48 good minutes at center with both those guys, and so losing that really really does hurt them in a way that is underappreciated. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about Teague later, just because I think there's there's an avenue for that. But then the last team is the Bulls, and I, I think it's pretty clear that the Bulls got worse. Well, worse, if you're going to say... 
what their baseline is is they won 42 games last year. Yeah, you you could say make an argument that they would be about at that level this year. I mean, I expect them to be a little bit worse than that. But when you look at what they were, I think coming into last season when they yeah, were healthy, talent. yeah, I think they've gotten significantly worse. The defense is probably going to be a lot worse than it was back when they were fully healthy last year. Their best player now is going to be neutered by the fact that they have no spacing with Rondo and Wade, not to mention that those guys also have the ball in their hands and are much less efficient than Butler is as well. That backcourt's not going to stop anybody. They don't have anybody who can shoot. I think Lopez is okay at center, but not really spectacular in any one area. And when he has to lay back on the pick and roll, they don't really have anyone who's good at getting over screens in their backcourt. So the mid-range is just going to be a total playground for other teams. I think that just the the fit of the pieces for them is so bad that, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you put a gun to my head, I'd say they're likely to win less than the 42 that they won last year, but not significantly so. But just overall in terms of what we think of this franchise is coming into last year versus coming into this year, there's no comparison. Yeah, I'd also have them right around 42 wins, better or worse, like... I could go either way, depending on when you ask me. I think it's going to be right around there. I guess I would slightly lean toward worse, I guess, but it's it's very, very close. I have the same fit concerns about Wade, Butler, and Rondo that everybody else does, but I think maybe I just give a little more credit to the idea that, hey, good players and smart players, at least at some point, maybe they can make it work. Rondo, definitely. I, I like that you threw in that smart caveat because you realized that Rondo isn't good and you felt like you had to expand <laughs> your statement. So I don't know exactly how good Rondo is because he, in some ways, he accomplished some of his goals with the Kings. He he built himself up to getting a, a better contract. He, he put up numbers. like It seems like that's what he was shooting for. And maybe with some other veterans around him, Jimmy Butler, who's had success already in the league, Dwayne Wade, who obviously has an incredible resume behind him, maybe he'll be more prone to put that intelligence toward things that help the team win more, maybe rather than just racking up his own stats. A lot of that's some wishful thinking, but I do see, I think I see more of a path to those three perimeter players working together than most people do. Yeah, when a guy is 30 and hasn't been good in four years, I usually just default to that he's not good anymore. The way that I, I don't know if it's fair to say he he wasn't good for four years. I mean, he wasn't obviously what he used to be and was probably overrated. But to say he wasn't good, I think, is a little too strong. Well, so he was injured one year. Then he had that year in Dallas where he was told to basically to go home and took what had been a really awesome offense to being a lot more average. Then he had that last year in Sacramento where he was terrible on defense and they, you know, they didn't really have a successful season when he was on the court. And then, you know, the year before that, he actually had disappointed. They hadn't played well from on the floor and then he tore his ACL uh, halfway through the year. So I, I think I would stick with that. Well, I guess, I guess if you're going to give him, if, if you're going to give him no allowance for the injuries and just say like, well, you missed time, you're not helping the team. If, if that's the way you're grading it in certain ways, obviously that makes sense then I'm fine with that. Uh, but, you know, some of those those later years in Boston, he was still pretty good when on the court. Uh, and then even with the Kings, I thought his passing was a real plus. Uh, obviously, his defense was a real minus, and, and there were the other things, the way he chased rebounds, they weren't all productive. Uh, but I do think the way he facilitated for that team actually worked fairly well. Yeah, there is an that's an aspect one aspect of his game that is good. Certainly, uh, undeniably, he's an excellent passer. He's good at 
post-entry passes, etc. But I think just the total package, his lack of shooting, needing to be on the ball all the time, the transition defense, the pick-and-roll defense, the gambling, like I think all that adds up to you know certainly someone who is barely starter level, if that, at the point guard position. That's I, the way that I was phrasing it, and I still might write this piece for The Athletic, is that Rajon Rondo makes teams Rondo-y, and there was a brief moment in time where that was actually an upgrade off of what it looked like the Bulls were going to have, just because it was just such a strange collection of talent. But once they got Wade, it just completely changed that calculus, and then that, I think that made it worse. And that combination of things just I think it's completely untenable and even if you stagger I don't even know what you stagger if you're going to stagger those guys but it's just a strange situation but move on we're all off-season nerds a move pick trade signing that stood out to you for whatever reason from these five teams I'm going to cheat a little bit and take two because they stood out to me for the same reason Uh, one is the Pacers firing Frank Vogel and the other is the Pacers trading George Hill for Jeff Teague. And it stood out to me because it's really Larry Bird doubling down on his view of how basketball should work, that you don't keep coaches too long because their message gets stale, even when they're good coaches who are still having success. It's his view that offenses should be a little more dynamic and that defenses can cover for it. So he gets a a better ball handler in Jeff Teague and maybe can play the way Larry Bird wants the team to play more. So it's it's a real bet by Larry Bird on himself, and a lot of times throughout his career when Larry Bird has bet on himself, it works. I don't think these moves will work. I think they were both mistakes. Uh, but I'm interested to see whether I or Larry Bird knows better. Yeah, I think th- that with, with Frank Vogel, yeah, I think his offenses have disappointed a little bit, although the last couple of years I don't think they had really talent that was a ton better you know, I think Larry Bird thinks they have that talent. You know, I think he believes that someone like Monte Ellis, Larry Bird really seems to put a premium on shot creation as opposed to shots going in. And while there are a lot of guys who have had high usages now on this team, Ellis, Teague, even Paul George has never been particularly efficient in his career. Young has been efficient at times, but not that often throughout his career. And when you throw in that there's kind of a lack of spacing and spot-up shooting on this team, and just that these are not guys who have had true shooting percentages well above the league average, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to create much more than an average offense out of these guys unless somehow putting all of these high-usage guys together can make all of them more efficient. But I don't necessarily think that that's going to be the case. And generally, I don't think that we've seen that to be the case in NBA history with a few exceptions. Yeah, it's also weird to me that uh, you talked about the idea of just how they've built this, is that it's I, I have trouble envisioning how their offense is just simply going to function because they, they have they have certainly have good players, but is, you know, is the ball just going to basically kind of bounce from island to island on different possessions? And it's not like commingling the guys a little bit differently is, is going to help that too much because they just have so many players that like the ball in their hands. Well, I, but I think in, in the same sense, you have a lot of guys who can take advantage if if one guy can break down the defense a little bit and get the defense moving. And if they play unselfishly, there are several guys are going to be several guys on the court who can just thrive if the defense is tilted away for them, they get the ball and immediately attack. But that requires them to be unselfish and We'll see how that goes. And someone in this same vein was the one that stuck out to me. I guess you could say even both of them, which is just the combination of the Rondo and Wade signings in Chicago. And the Wade signing makes a little bit more sense just because of who he is, 
what his stature is in the league. And, you know, I think if they had it to, to do over again, maybe they wouldn't have signed Rondo first, but they didn't know that Wade was coming at that time. I would have liked the Wade move a lot more if they simply had a guy who was more of even like a Jared Bayless type of guy or a Del Vadova who just doesn't need the ball, can shoot spot up from three and, and, and play some defense, but doesn't necessarily create a ton for you at the point guard position. But they don't have that. And I think the fit, the I mean, Butler and Wade already have very similar games. And then you throw in Rondo having to hold the ball all the time, too. It's just I think it, both they and the Pacers, those moves both stood out to me because it's taking guys that have certain individual talents. And you could say that maybe the shot creation is a talent that is overrated unless you are really, really efficient. And you're taking those guys and putting them in a situation where I think they're destined to be less than the sum of their parts offensively. I think you hit on the big thing with the Bulls, not necessarily for grading this offseason, but evaluating how much you trust their management going forward. And the question is, when they signed Rondo, how much did they know about their chances of signing Wade? Because, yeah, even after you have Rondo, I'm with you that adding Wade still makes some sense. But if you knew that could be coming or might be coming, like then Rondo really doesn't make sense. Uh, I don't so think it's, it's how much you want to ding them for that. Well, I mean, or nobody have known. Yeah, n- nobody thought that was going to happen until it did. You know, yeah, I mean, everyone like, thought that even, Wade was doing the same thing he always did, which is just use use those offers as leverage to get the deal he always should have gotten in Miami. That's happened a couple times. Yeah, and that's that's definitely a fair assessment, and that might be the right one. But if you're the Bulls, like is Rajon Rondo like? You, you got to realize, too, if Wade is serious, you're going to be a contender. There's going to be appeal for going home. So is Ron, Rajon Rondo worth losing whatever slim chance that is? I mean, I, I'm generally with you on that, that the Bulls probably didn't know. And it's probably not fair to ask them to know that, that Wade would seriously consider them. But they got it wrong. And so you, I think you do have to take a deeper look into that. Well, yeah, I mean, Rondo isn't that good anyway. I didn't think that was a great signing. I would rather just go with even more of a placeholder who just can shoot and isn't going to take anything off the table for anyone else offensively and on defense. So I thought even without knowing that Wade was coming there, I wouldn't have been in favor of that Rondo signing. And then now that he is there, I mean, now you could argue maybe that Rondo made him more likely to want to come there. They've had these battles. Wade probably hasn't you know, watched a bunch of tape on Rondo to see that he's not necessarily the player that he was back during their playoff battles in, you know, 2011 and 2012. And so, it's not like Wade could have uh, seen Rondo play in the playoffs, too. It's not like it's that's the time sometimes <laughs> that you get that exposure. <laughs> but yeah, it's, there's just that weirdness with the Bulls. And also with Rondo, the idea of an opportunity cost. So it is true that the Bulls couldn't have seen it coming with, with Wade, that it would have been hard to see it coming. And it's a more, more fair way of putting it. But... It's not like they got this amazing deal on Rondo where it's like, oh my god, we have him at the mid-level exception, he's going to do something. Like, let's say Zaza Pachulia with the Warriors. Like, if you can get a circumstance like that, then of course, then you strike while the iron is hot. There weren't that many teams, I think, that were really interested in Rondo, and at that time, there was not this, you know, huge cost of if you let him go, then there aren't going to be any other options. So, that's the part of it that bothered me. But Yeah, having to guarantee the $3 million in this second year for Rondo, I, I felt like... That that was really I could see all right you got to pay what you got to pay just for one year and that's not that bad but guaranteeing that three million in the second year probably won't be a, a big thing in the grand scheme of things they're trying to use cap space they can always stretch it 
if they move on from him. But it, that seemed like one of those little things that they didn't have to do. One thing you do have to do is try out Blue Apron. It is an absolutely amazing product that I've been lucky enough to try out for a few months. And for me, the biggest impact has been building my cooking confidence. I'm somebody who grew up with parents that are talented chefs, so I grew accustomed, let's say, to eating good food, and I didn't have the ability to make it for myself. And now with Blue Apron, I have that ability. I'm getting more comfortable not only making their meals, but doing my own. And it is an absolutely great product because they give detailed instructions, exactly the right ingredients, the prepackaged amounts so you don't have any food waste, and they're incredibly high quality. So you get this amazing atmosphere to try something out, to learn new techniques, to learn new dishes, and it has become a staple of my week. It has become a highlight of my week. And you can try it out for yourself. You go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and then you can try three meals for free, and that includes free shipping, so you can see whether you like it. Hopefully you will as much as I do. It is a product that I've become incredibly passionate about after trying it out for myself. So you go to blueapron.com slash realgm, quality meals, great ingredients, and build up your cooking confidence. Now back to the podcast. Next question. I struggled with this for a minute and then realized, for me, who the right answer was. The best newcomer to his team in this division. Oh, man. Not a ton. It's, that's, I mean, you could look at Teague. Teague, Wade, and Del Vadova would be the three that I would most be considering. Detroit didn't really add anyone of particular significance, uh, and neither did Cleveland. I guess, even though I didn't particularly care for the trade, it would be Teague, for me, I just think he maybe Wade is still a better player than he is, but I think just because of the fit issues that he may not perform as well this year, he's also more of a health risk than Teague. So I guess I would say Teague, but a rather tepid group in the aggregate. I'll take Wade just because I think he's better when he's on the court still, with the major caveat that at his age, with his injury history, he can just have a huge drop at any moment, and then I think it'd be Teague. Yeah, when I was through the first couple of teams, I'm like, oh, God, is it really going to be Del Vadova? And then I, I thought about Teague and Wade, and I, I think it's Teague, even though I kind of like Wade better, but something that I hadn't seriously considered before today is the fundamental difference in terms of usage between George Hill and Jeff Teague. So last year, using Nylon Calculus's true usage metric, which includes more playmaking stuff, George Hill was the number three guy in usage on his own starting lineup. Jeff Teague was about 10th in the league. I think he was 10th or 11th. So that is a fundamental change in terms of the way that the offense will flow. And from what I have heard, it is still seems like Monte is going to start. So you, you're playing Monte, who's a high usage two. Paul George, who wants to be a high usage three. And then Jeff yeah. Teague, who's one of those guys. And so Teague is fundamentally the best player of that group, especially when you factor in the value because he'll play more minutes. But that fit issue is really strange in a way that doesn't happen very often because most teams don't have high usage twos and threes on top of it and that's actually an issue Chicago is going to deal with as well and even Young is someone who's going to shoot a lot more than any of the fours that they played regularly last year and so yeah I think the net effect could be you're taking more shots out of the hands of Paul George and putting it into the hands of lesser players. And of course, I'm sure that's something Paul George loves to hear right before he's going to be a free agent soon enough. So just making that decision around him when he has, he doesn't, his opt-out isn't next year, it's in 2018. But I mean, I don't think this is again, parallel with, with the Pacers, with Pacers Bulls, with Jimmy is, I don't think you want to make these guys who are the best players on your team unhappy about their offensive role. And I think the trick with that though, is it's not just making them unhappy. 
it's when you make them unhappy. Like, I, I think Jimmy Butler likes the idea of playing with Dwayne Wade and Rajon Rondo because of their reputations, because of what they've accomplished. But so what? He's not going to be a free agent for years. You need to make sure he's happy when he's going into free agency. Like, you don't necessarily need to make a move like this. To If, if appeasing him was at all a factor, you don't need to do it now. You don't need to do, like, the quick fix that he likes on paper. You need to prove to him over the years, and it's going to be the same thing with Paul George as he gets to it toward his contract. Like, prove to him over the years you know how to build a winner and send him in, into free agency on the right note. Yeah, it wouldn't shock me if he certainly is not anywhere close to the best player of these guys. But if just Delhi, because he does fit what the Bucks need, and that's why they arguably overpaid for him, just with his shooting, his ability to defend at the point of attack, his headiness, his ability to throw lobs in pick and roll, if just because of his fit, he actually has the greatest positive effect on his team of any newcomer in this division, despite the fact that he is an inferior player to many of these newcomers. Yeah, I certainly think that's possible also. I think he's a little bit far enough behind Teague and what Wade brings when he's on the court, where when Delhi's on the court, he's not going to quite be there. But relative to his talent and his ability, I think he'll be a lot closer and be more in the conversation just because of fit also. And I'll be interested to see how he impacts their defense. And, of course, they're probably going to be making other changes just in terms of the big man spot. But if he can really help them create that identity, and, you know, that was that was one of the biggest differences between Milwaukee two years ago when they surprised and made the playoffs, and then Milwaukee last year when they disappointed was just overall defense. And they're only changing two spots. But I do think that having somebody who, you know, is a grinder, and that's not just the stereotype, that's just the way he plays – that to have that in there could have some spillover effects, though I don't think the issue with their you know perimeter guys defensively was effort, really. It was just execution and having worse defenders on the floor. Is there any evidence, this is a bit of a backtrack, but other than points per game, is there anything that you can really point to to say that Dwayne Wade was a good player, was an all-star level of player during the regular season last year? Can you sound like... Uh... You're going to be the leader of the wages of win movement with your other than points per game as if that doesn't count. I don't think it does, really. I mean, there are probably 30 metrics I would look at before that to determine whether someone's – I mean, he wasn't high in any of the on-off metrics. He was below the league average in true shooting percentage. He he set, set guys up a little bit, but I don't think anyone would say that he was a good defensive player during the regular season. I mean, he can create shots at a slightly below average efficiency level you know and he wasn't really playing that many minutes either so yeah he played extremely well in the playoffs that burnished his reputation although he also had some real clunkers in the playoffs too that people forget about because he made a lot of key shots but you know aside from that I like and also just the fact that he played as many games as he did last year people were surprised that he stayed healthy and he's still Dwayne Wade and he looks like Dwayne Wade but if you really look at what his actual contribution was you would be hard-pressed to prove that he was really that good last year. Well, I think he did, he did a very good job of drawing fouls. He was a pretty good distributor for an off guard. And I just I don't think you can discount. I mean, maybe points per game is not the exact stat, best stat to use. Uh, but I just don't think you can discount his scoring. I mean, to take such a, a high usage and put up a, a reasonable efficiency for that a very high usage, there's value in that. Yeah, I'm not saying he was like a bad player that he wasn't valuable, but 
all-star level, I, I personally do not buy that he was at that level last year. And especially now that he's going to be going to a new team, maybe that'll be more apparent. We will see. But, you know, if they're running the, the offense through him at the expense of giving Jimmy Butler more opportunities, I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, I think that's I think that's certainly fair. This division is certainly weaker in this than most but what rookie are you most excited to see this year? I have a hunch it's going to be the same as Nate's, but it's for a very opposite reason, and it's Thon Maker. Uh, I rated him in the second round. The Bucks took him number 10. I just think he's an enormous project, uh, very far to go from putting some of his physical skills to, to actual practical basketball use. Uh, but I'm interested to see what the Bucks saw in him other than his agent. Yeah, Thon... I would say Thon, too, but we said rookie we are most excited to see, and I fear that we're not going to see him at all because he's got three centers ahead of him in the rotation. Maybe he'll be able to slide in a little bit more as a stretch four, especially because he's thin and he can move his feet okay. Then maybe they'll try to get him some minutes there. Uh, but, yeah, really, I mean, Denzel Valentine, Henry Ellenson, those guys don't exactly raise the pulse much. Maybe Kay Felder. Maybe it's Kay Felder. He's looking like he's the backup point guard. He's an exciting guy, at least. And he is, as of now, your backup point guard in Cleveland. Can I change my answer? I completely forgot about Kay Felder, and I'm a huge Kay Felder fan. I'd love to see him get minutes. I think he'll be a little overwhelmed as a rookie. Like, I would not want to be a championship contender being forced to rely on him in the rotation. Uh, but I'm excited to see how it goes. I was between those two guys. Kay Felder is more of an enjoyment thing just because he, he is fun to watch and he's a, a, a spark in that way. But for me, Thon Maker is, is it for two reasons. One, he is a bigger part of Milwaukee's future than Kay Felder is in Cleveland, albeit that Cleveland has a brighter future right now, so being a small piece of that is definitely notable. And also, Thon is somebody, this is something that happens with me personally, that I get invested in. I actually saw Thon play a high school game. And so, you know, saw him play in high school and that, seeing that kind of development, you know, of course, the mixtapes and all that kind of stuff back in the day. And the Bucks, they don't necessarily need him right now, but they need him in the future. And he has a, a sort of unusual skill set he likes. He's more comfortable with the ball in his hands than most guys his size, though he won't probably do that in the NBA. So I'm intrigued by how that will work, though I agree with Nate's concern that we won't see very much of it. Why did you have him ranked in the second round, Dan? I just think that I was not comfortable reading as much into the very limited exposure he had that he, you know, he didn't go play in college. He hid from any type of assessments of him. He's so raw. Uh, I don't think I don't think he's a center in the NBA. I don't think he ever will be. I don't, I, despite his height, I don't think he's going to be strong enough and physical enough to handle that. Uh, and I don't think he's a good enough shooter to be a stretch four. Although he could get there, he could get strong enough. Like there's some tools. I think he was draftable, but I just I think he's so far from showing what he can do at an acceptable level where I'd feel comfortable drafting him in the first round level in the lottery. All right, well, I, I've talked about why, why I like Thon before, so I won't get get into that too much. I mean, the only thing that gives me pause for him is the age thing, but assuming the Bucks have done their research and they're relatively comfortable that he's at least pretty close to his listed 19, I, I felt like that could be a pretty good pick there. One other guy in this division who's probably going to play, we talked about that issue with Thon, is Malcolm Brogdon. 
Brogdon fills more of a need for the Bucks, as, depending on what position they really think he can defend, but especially if they're not totally sold on Rashad Vaughn. They just need swingman depth on their second unit, and I don't think they're going to do too much staggering of the other guys. So he could play, and you know we don't know how relevant the Bucks are going to be. They certainly could be relevant. And so there, there aren't even that many guys. It's kind of a low bar, but there aren't even that many guys in this division that are going to play. So I think Brogdon deserves at least a little bit of a mention. Yeah, that Bucks backup wing depth is looking pretty ugly. I'm glad you mentioned that. There really is nobody established that they have there. I mean, unless you want to count Carter Williams, but he's really more of a backup point guard and can't shoot. So, well, yeah, if you don't count MCW, if you don't count MCW as a one, then their backup one issue. They have issues there unless <laughs> unless you have Jason yeah. Terry. Like there, there are a couple of teams like now that I've been doing the doing salary stuff, but also doing kind of depth charty stuff, and you just realize oh, they're a lot shallower there. And also, I think all three of us are intrigued by the idea of Giannis at moments in time defending power forwards. And you absolutely can't do that, or even theoretically center Giannis. You can't do that when you don't have wings. And they are going to be dealing with that issue probably for a long time. I'm trying to think, are there any other like notable rookies in this in this division? Like, I mean, Denzel Valentine's not going to play. I, I don't think he's... Oh, you like Zipser, right, Nate? Not really. He wasn't great by the translations, and he's a guy with size who has some high-level experience. I don't think he was a bad pick at that level, but someone who's who's that low, I wouldn't necessarily, and I don't see him playing at all this year. So, and I'm also that doesn't have a particularly exciting game either. So, I wouldn't necessarily put him in that category. I mean, I think he's an okay pick for where he was picked, but I wouldn't say anything more beyond that. I think Denzel Valentine's going to play. I think he's somebody who more naturally fits Fred Hoiberg's style, so I think the coach When they need a defensive upgrade over Wade and Rondo. (laughs) Well, that too. And so, you know, I think the coach is going to want to play him, uh, and I think the front office has a vested interest in making sure their first-round pick looks good. Uh, So between that, uh, yeah, I I think he'll play. I think he'll be in the regular rotation. Yeah, I mean, maybe I could see him getting like 12 minutes a game or so, or something like that because they are going to need shooting uh, on the second unit. Wade theoretically not going to play that many minutes. They don't really have much of a solution at backup point guard, and he has some point guard type of skills. Maybe you could see him playing uh, alongside Isaiah Cannon at times, but again, that's another incredibly rough uh, defensive backcourt. They're all rough defensive backcourts. <laughs> I mean, so Dan, as the as the Pistons connoisseur among us. Is Ellenson just going to be like a D-League guy at this point and just see if it works out eventually? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they'll keep him in the D-League or value him being around, you know, the top players and whatever limited practice there is and just the experience of going through a, an NBA schedule. But but either way, I think the idea is going to be the same. Like, it's hard to see him getting minutes. I don't think he's quite strong enough to play center yet. I don't think his shot is there to play power forward yet on a, on a pretty solid team that's, I think, more likely than not to make the playoffs, and that's deep in the front court. You know, between Andre Drummond, John Luer, Aaron Baines, Boban Marjanovic, and then Tobias Harris and Marcus Morris will get plenty of minutes of power forward. I just, I don't really see much of an opening for Ellenson this year. I liked your use of the word yet. It's nice to have that optimism about a player. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think he has some tools to do some things, and he's on the right track as developing as as a playmaking center. That's that's well, the well, track so, I so, want to keep him on. Okay, now now I feel like I need to press this. So you don't think Thon Maker can play center, but you think Henry Ellenson can? 
Because it feels to me like Ellenson's weaknesses are more pronounced and more, let's say, catastrophic defensively at the five than Thon's are. Well, Ellenson's got a lot more weight on him to be able to do that. I don't think he can yet. Or, and, but I, I just see him being more on that track where Thon Maker is thinner and more like his strengths are being a little more mobile. Where I just don't think Ellenson's going to get mobile enough where you're going to be comfortable playing him at power forward and defending power forwards. Where Maker, I think that's more of a path for him. I agree with you that Ellenson can't defend power forwards, but that doesn't mean he can defend fives. It's just, I, 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 Ellenson was a guy who I liked some of what he brought just kind of in theory. And then when I started thinking about him in the NBA, I just started going, oh crap. And I'd love to be wrong, you know, with any of these players who have physical gifts. And I mean, there, there were a lot of the uh, things that I liked about Kevin Love as a player, just in terms of like being in the right place and things like that and having more versatility offensively that were good. But Ellenson isn't at the level like where Love is, where you can justify everything else. You know, like if you, if you can reach a certain level offensively or defensively, you can justify it. But this is, there might even be a parallel to Doug McDermott here, where I think you have to reach a threshold. And Ellenson could. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna write it off. But that's always hard when when you kind of go into it knowing that that's a decision you're gonna have to make. So have we now talked about him more than any other player in, in this division? <laughs> I guess Wade still we talked about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so I think is there anything else in the off season, just kind of as a catch all before we move on that you guys think that we should spend a little bit more time on? Not really. I, I think there are just a, a lot of interesting contrasts in approaches here where it was in the Indiana and Chicago. It's let's get as many names as we can. Detroit and Milwaukee were more let's try to fill exactly what our needs are, even if they're not with the highest quality players in a vacuum. We want to try and get some guys with, that fit with what our weaknesses were last year. I have one, actually. How optimistic are you guys that Cleveland is going to get somebody usable or in some way with the Verizon trade exception? Yeah, that's a big one. It's not just can they get somebody as far as a, a roster management issue and making a, a reasonable trade. It's also is Dan Gilbert going to pay for somebody who could add millions and millions and millions of dollars to the luxury tax bill? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure, especially after these last couple rounds of spending in these last two off seasons, whether there's anyone who is necessarily going to make a difference that also would be gettable to them with the assets they have on hand, which I think they basically have, you know, first rounder that they can't trade for, I want to say like three or four years now. And then they also have Chetty Osman and, I think they're pretty much out of second rounders now too. So, and there's nobody really young on that team who is much of an asset that they could give up either. So when you consider that anyone who's going to make a difference against Golden State, they're probably going to want another good wing that they can bring in a wing who is making less than $9.6 million and who also would be gettable with what are relatively paltry assets. Uh, And obviously you'd be more expensive to get in trade because he's making so little and he's actually good enough, I don't know that that player is necessarily out there to expect them to get a difference maker with that trade exception. And you could think about it in in terms of the, you know, playing a video game or the monopoly money aspect of Dan Gilbert of saying like, oh, maybe they could take somebody who has years that a team is uncomfortable with, but that's also 
a lot of money for Dan Gilbert. It's like Corey Brewer, for example. Like, Corey Brewer is somebody who maybe, you know, Houston would rather have that space than, you know, have him on their books for another two seasons. But that's a lot for a guy who's going to be, you know, pretty marginal. Yeah, he doesn't help them at all. Exactly. So, I mean, those kind of options will be on the table, I would assume. But does that make the Cavs much better? And you're really committing to, like, kind of being deeper. And one aspect with the Cavs is that, well, it is true that they're, you know, still in the tax and something as Nate and I have been going through 2017 stuff, is that their bill is lessening pretty substantially as the cap is rising. So it's not really giving them more flexibility, but at least it is helping that. Not that they need help on their bottom line considering they just won the title. Maybe C.J. Miles? Might be someone, if the Pacers kind of fall out of it a little bit, that, that they could target a guy well, who's I mean, been in about, Cleveland before. What about before. Stuckey? I mean, Stuckey seems like a more likely one if they're not going to not give up assets for. Yeah, I don't know that he really helps you at all. They've got enough shot creation, I, I feel like, and they don't need more guys who can't shoot. I think Miles complements well, kind what, of what they what need I, a what I, Can I make a yes. prediction? About really, like... If I'm going to get one player I can name in the league who the Cavs might get with that trade exception, how about Darren Williams? If the Mavericks season goes south, and I don't think any of us would be shocked by that, uh, if Kay Felder is not ready to become the primary backup point guard, if Mo Williams retires, Darren Williams out there making $9 million fits just inside that trade exception, and you know I don't think his cost is going to be substantially high. Uh, and he could work as the backup point guard in Cleveland. The guy who I was thinking of for that it, on the point guard realm is C.J. Watson because the Magic already got his replacement in another you know initials guy with D.J. Augustine, and so they don't really have a need for C.J. And you know I think he'd be a reasonable enough fit for Cleveland. And considering that Orlando has not only a trade history with Cleveland but has a history of giving up guys without really extracting anything, even if they have a little bit of leverage. I think that's a a combination that could work. Again, this ties in with my idea that Cleveland isn't going to get much with this exception. I've been wrong before. And also a, a problem with this is that for certain situations, I think that a trade exception could be used actually to claim a guy off waivers. But I don't think that's going to happen during the time before this expires very much. So my guess is that Cleveland's best shot is actually a buyout as opposed to getting somebody with this exception. Uh, I'll move on to the season preview part of this. Just rank these teams one to five. I was thinking regular season record, but you can do whatever makes you happy. Cleveland and Detroit are the top two to me. I guess I would go Indiana, Milwaukee, Chicago, but I think all of those are very, very close to me, and no no order among the three of those teams would surprise. Well, I guess if Chicago, Chicago being the top one of those teams would surprise me, I think. So I mean, but I guess I would go Indiana just because they were the best of them last year. Even though, as I said, I don't particularly care for a lot of their moves. You know, I see them finishing kind of forty-three, forty-two wins this year, and that's probably going to be better than Milwaukee or Chicago. Not a whole lot of disagreement from me. The Cavs are obviously number one. I have the Pistons too, sort of in a tier by themselves, and then I have the final three teams all in the same tier, like you. Uh, my order would be Pacers, Bulls, Bucks, but give me any order, including Chicago at the top, and I wouldn't be very surprised. I don't have the Pistons in a tier by themselves by the logic that I think one of those teams, you know, basically their their expected value is substantially higher than the bottom three teams, but I could see a circumstance where the Pistons stumble a little bit or those other teams rise up. Like, you know, I, I don't think that highly of Indiana, but... They, they could definitely roll something out there. And it's not like I'm saying they're going, oh, if the Pistons went 500 this year, that would be like 
almost like a shocking, unprecedented thing. Like it's possible. I don't expect it, but it's possible. Like if if Reggie missed time or you know things like that, you think it could really happen. And then between the bottom three, which we all pretty much agree on, I think that there's a little bit of a separation between Indy and Milwaukee with Chicago, just on the logic of kind of star power and just how everything how everything fits in. Like I can there's I have a greater theory of the team with Milwaukee than I do with Chicago, but. The other big question with it is injuries, and so, I mean, that is something that you think of as kind of an even, like kind of a, you know, there's a risk either way, and I think Indiana is strangely shallow this year, and I think that, while uh, that kind of keeps that, I still have them third, but I don't think they can really withstand an injury to almost anybody other than their shooting guards, where they have an army of those guys, but like, you know, if T gets hurt, they don't really have a replacement for him. If Paul George gets hurt, they have nothing. If Thaddeus Young gets hurt, well, they're going to put Lavoie Allen in, and then now their center depth is super weird, so... I could see a circumstance where Indy falls hard, not only out of the playoffs, but really towards the bottom, just because they can't withstand really much of anything now. I would put Chicago in that category, actually, just because of their team's pretty miserable health record overall over the past few years. And then Rondo and Wade, both guys who have been injured in the recent past, Butler as well. And, And also, I think just there's a possibility that Butler might not be as good this year because he has not looked nearly as explosive ever since he injured that knee in Denver in January. There's also the issue with, with Chicago about just their level of depth at various positions. Like, if Robin Lopez missed time, would they just play some of their power forwards as center? Like, I guess Taj would play more. They'd, Felicia would, of course, step into a larger role too, but that's not enough, and... I don't think they really have outside of that. So that's another position. Like, really, their, their power forward spot is kind of like Indiana's, too, where they just have enough guys there, but they don't really anywhere else. Well, I think you could put the Bucks in that same situation. I mean, we were just talking about how weak their wing or point guard depth is between the two spots. So, you know, if they have injuries at the wrong spot, they could they could be in a lot of trouble, too. Yeah, at least their guys are young, though, which Indiana and, and especially Chicago's aren't necessarily. Yes. Yeah, and, I mean, Jabari... Are there any concerns in it? You, you, I consider you more the authority on lower leg injuries, at least compared to me. There, the kind is, of he is that a, because I personally had every possible lower yes. leg injury, basically. Yes, it is. And so with Jabari, like there isn't really much of a risk of a recurrence. It's just that it happened, right? Yeah, I don't think so. Since he was relatively young, uh, he looked like he was fine last year. I wouldn't necessarily say that there's any reason to think that that's uh, going to happen again for him. Yeah, that that's definitely a good sign. And yeah, it's it's strange in this in this division just because you're right. There, there are a lot of teams, and with Detroit, they're they have more strength just kind of throughout the roster. But I mean, even a, a KCP injury would be harmful for them just because they don't really have the guys to slide over there. I mean, Reggie would be devastating, but KCP. But having that at one position is very different than having it at like three or four. Like I would say for the Pacers and maybe the Bulls. Oh. Here's a question. What would it take for Cleveland to not win this division? Huh. I don't know. A lot. Le- LeBron James getting injured. That's it. If, as long as he's healthy, they're the best team in this division. Like, even, if, even if he's hurt, like, if are he they still the 40, If he misses 40 games, I still think they win this division. It's competitive. They've always been awful without him uh, during the, this period since he's been back. And Kyrie, even Kevin Love, those guys have not shown the ability to win without him. They rely on him a lot defensively as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think if he, if he, without him, they are a 500 team, in my opinion. They're around there. I'm not sure the Pistons are so much better uh, to the point where 
where Cleveland would be competitive. And I also think, and I thought this last year, so we'll see, but Kyrie Irving seems close to ready to really reaching another level. Yeah, I, I, well, so I was thinking about if, if even if you take Nate's, Nate's assertion, which is completely val- reasonable that the Cavs are a 500 team when LeBron sits, they would he would still need to sit, I think, at least half the year for that to even really affect it. Because, like, the Pistons could push in there, but, like, Cleveland, I, I think they would still get, you know, 45, 48 wins. So, yeah, that that's pretty ridiculous. And that they might have the biggest buffer in their division of any of anyone in the league because the Warriors have the Clippers and, you know, various other teams have at least someone else, especially now with the Celtics rising in the Atlantic. You, you know what the number one way is the Cavs don't win the division? If before the season, the NBA says, well, divisions don't really matter anymore since we've changed the playoff <laughs> format, we're not going to have them at all. <laughs> I would be so happy. Oh, my God. But it, it, it's not It's not going to happen. Okay, so that, that actually ties in with the next question. And since Dan said well, Wait, that, hold on, though, Danny. If, if they outlaw divisions, how what format are you going to use for your <laughs> season previews? Oh, I'll figure out a way to do it. If that that is a worthwhile <laughs> sacrifice, if they are going to get rid of divisions. I mean, especially in terms of scheduling. I mean, it's just. I mean, there are a few things that bo- that just bother me more. I mean, that's not even getting into my whole craziness with scheduling and conferences and all that all that stuff. But we don't need to do that now. But yeah, I, I would figure out another format. Maybe maybe I just use a random former central division preview. Yeah, that that uh, honestly, that probably is what it would end up being. <laughs> <laughs> and then there, and then maybe they'd expand, and then they'd have to fit in those teams. But we'd make it work, or just do thirty individual team previews, like Dunk Don's going to do. Gimmick infringement. So, how many teams from this division make the playoffs? I will take three: the Cavs, Pistons, and whichever of the Pacers, Bulls, uh, Bucks triumvirate comes out ahead. Yeah, you you stole mine because I, in thinking about this, I tried to really go in to break down the East. So I think Cleveland is kind of in a tier in their own. Then maybe you have Boston and Toronto. Possibly you could throw Charlotte in there. Maybe not. We'll see. I, I, I probably would be inclined to. And then after that, I would say you've got nine teams, all of whom I would peg at this point for being between 35 and 45 wins in my projection with Philadelphia and Brooklyn kind of just being completely out of it. So predicting who among Milwaukee, Chicago, or Indiana will be the best is difficult enough. And then saying where they're going to fall compared to Washington and the Knicks and Orlando and Miami. We don't even know if Chris Bosh is going to play. Atlanta has a ton of uncertainty. Milwaukee, you know, all of those teams, I think, are right about the same level as those last three teams, you know, within about a 10-win range. And, and I think it would be nearly impossible to try to predict which specific team is going to make it. But I agree with you. I think it'll just be one. And then, you know, especially because I think the Bulls kind of have some risk too, and so do the Bucks in terms of just they won 33 last year, so they've got to kind of make a leap, which I think they could. But I could see two of those three teams really like not meeting expectations. Certainly, that's part of the reason why I like doing number of teams rather than identity is that for certain divisions, it, it can be clarifying just in terms of thinking about it. And there is a real possibility that this division could get four, just that two of them step up also because... uh, some of the other teams in that tier just have potential to fall off. And so it's just kind of who who stays afloat and things like that. So it is certainly possible that they got four. I think five is a little bit unreasonable. Would you guys say it's more likely that they get four or two? Four. Yeah, I think so. Uh, One of those three teams has got to make it, you'd think. 
Yeah, because that I mean they they all have enough talent to be in this mix, and also just in terms of the numbers game, if you know the Atlantic Division has two teams that are functionally out of it, so in this mix it's really only the Knicks. Then, as as you put it, so in the in the Southeast it's three or three or so teams. So if you have that, if you have basically seven teams or so gunning for those spots, it's just they have almost half of them. So I think it's pretty reasonable that that two is more likely than zero. So the last, the last question in terms of the structured part of this is a more kind of interesting one, at least to me intellectually, and in that what player or players do you think will break out? And that doesn't have to be becoming a star or something like that. I think that's the most commonly way it's used, but players who will step into another level, either in terms of production, fame, you know, whatever you want to define it. Nikola Miritich is one that really pops out to me. He's just going to have to play a ton on this team. They have no shooting in the backcourt uh, and... and so that means that they're just desperately going to need his spacing. Uh, he was injured for a lot of last year, but did end up finishing at almost 40% on three-pointers after starting his career not shooting well, starting last year not shooting well. He was on fire towards the end of the year, uh, had a good summer as well. So I, I think he's someone who could be out there. He's going into free agency, getting into his prime. You know, I think he'll be 26 this year, I want to say. Uh, so he's one that comes to mind. And then Jabari and Giannis are, are the other two uh, for me. Giannis is the first one that really stood out to me because the Bucks actually, so once the nominal point Giannis kind of change took hold, the Bucks actually were pretty good offensively. I, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but I, I think it was the kind of the equivalent of top 10. And of course, there's a lot of small sample size issues with that, and especially because they weren't really playing in relevant games. And so teams weren't getting up for it in that sense. But if he can continue that sort of a thing in the year, I think that that becomes something different. And, of course, he's always been a league pass darling. That's been true since he started actually playing. But I think he could, you know, he could make that jump into being a being the best player on a good team, potentially even being an all-star just because that could be a weak point in the, in the East. And the fact that he could actually deserve that is is really exciting and with Jabari it's it's kind of the same thing you know he he played he played well at moments last year but to do it hopefully with a larger stage and on a team that can be relevant would definitely be a would be a an an increase in all of that my problem with picking Giannis for for this is that i think his rookie year because he was so exciting people treated him like he was already good and he wasn't yet so I think he's really only had two years of being good, but three years of having a reputation of being very good. Uh, and so the expectations are, are so high for him. I think it could be tough for him to match those, but I really like him, and I, I think he could be very good. Uh, the, the guy I would pick is Miles Turner from the Pacers, yeah. who I think was good throughout his rookie year and came on strong at the end. And the way they're, they're changing their style a little bit, I think he'll fit well in an up-tempo scheme he's he can move for his size uh, he can shoot from the outside he's got to expand his range a little bit more beyond the three-point arc to really really take hold uh, but i like a lot of the tools he brings and i think he's ready to do more this is not a team that has a ton of sexy young or, or not a division that has a ton of sexy young talent in it no and i think the other part with turner and i i've talked about this before with a couple other guys in the league right now he's going to get a lot of opportunities to block shots because they're going to have some weak perimeter <laughs> defense. And Miles Turner is one of the best guys at just sizing players up and catching them. I Actually, one of the more impressive moments in Team USA, it was in the day that they let us watch the scrimmages, was he caught Paul George. 
And you're saying that, like, oh, if anybody would have kind of figured this out, it would be his teammate. And the fact that Turner kind of caught up to him and made that play was really impressive against, you know, one of the best guys in the world. So do you guys agree with me uh, on Jabari? Is is this going to be a time for him to really uh, take some strides? Or you think I'm just being a little too Chicago homer on him? I mean, I've always really liked him. I still had him number six on my top 10 prospects in the NBA list last year in December. So am I too high on him, or do you think he really could break out this year? He could, and I liked him a lot more coming into the league, and I've mostly been fine with with what I've seen since, but I just haven't quite seen enough from him in his in his time in the league, and obviously injury has something to do with that. And I'm not sure how great a shape he was in last year, so I also think that points to his potential for this year, you know, if he can be in better shape. Uh, but I just haven't seen quite enough where I'm like, oh, yeah, he's prime. Like, he's right there. He's knocking on the door. I wouldn't be shocked if he breaks out. Uh, but I'm not ready to include him on that. those types of lists. He just has to get better on the class. Uh, yeah, and defensively as well. But, I mean, these guys were horrible defensive rebounding the ball last year. And his defensive rebounding percentage as the nominal power forward in a lot of lineups, 13%. That is, like, below league average pretty much. So, that is really ugly. That's like, that's like shooting uh, Gian- level, right? Yeah, I mean, Giannis had 20%. That's actually, you know, decent enough for a, a power forward. But And Jabari, you could say maybe he was playing on the perimeter a little bit more, but he just, when a shot goes up, he just does not crash the defensive glass. And that's too bad because, like Giannis, he is an excellent grab-and-go threat. Uh, he has been mostly used pretty much as a finisher. You know, his usage is only, only 21%. And I think that, giving him the ball in his hands more and letting him try to do some more ISOs and, and create could really help him. I'm not sure that they're going to use him that way. He's been very effective just kind of cutting along the baseline and getting dunks that way. But I, I would like to see him with the ball in his hands more than we've seen. And then also, you know, they just didn't have the spacing last year. Maybe now that they have Mirza, that they have Del Vadova at the one, he'll be able to have more space to really go at guys from the mid post. I think this might be a little bit of a chicken or the egg argument, but one of the reasons I'm not quite on high, as high on him as you are going into next year, and a lot of this is opportunity, no question, but he hasn't quite shown so many flashes or, or especially sustained stretches at all of, of doing something with the ball in his hands like that. Uh, and so I don't know how much the Bucks trust him to do that. I think the next step for him is is showing more flashes with it and then showing he deserves it. And that's why I just think he's maybe uh, two years away from being in that real breakout category instead of it being this year. Or I guess also one hit, year away. Hitting, hitting the NBA three is another thing that I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, just if based on what you saw from him in college, and maybe that'll just never develop in the NBA. That happens for some people. But he did have the injury. And he also hasn't been asked to do any of those things that much. Like, he was a quality three-point shooter in college, and he was a guy who was awesome at getting buckets in college one-on-one. And I think if he's given the opportunity, especially to have the ball in his hands, then I think he can be successful, especially because the other team, I mean, he's either going to be able to blow by a power forward who's guarding him, or he'll be able to put someone in the goal because they're going to have to put a wing on Giannis as well. And one of those two guys is going to have a subpar defender on him. Yeah, they're just uh, that was there just aren't that many teams that have a second guy that is really really capable. And I mean, you know, that will eventually be come to home to roost in like a playoff series or something like that. But 
in a day-to-day, the Bucks are also an unusual team just in terms of the way their offense is constructed, and I think that can help them in the regular season setting too, just because teams generally kind of hop from one game to the next, and so they're not going to prep like that for the Bucks, especially when the Bucks aren't at the top of anybody's list, and so they could benefit from that and from kind of catching teams in that way. But we'll, we'll, we'll really have to see with that. But I, I I think I'm kind of between the two of you with Jabari because his talent is, is there, and I've seen a lot from him that, that is impressive, just in, uh, especially in college, yeah, of his ability to get buckets and the attention there. But So I think offensively it should work a lot better, but it, for me with defense, until I see it, I don't have faith in it. And so that is a big problem, and that will be a big part of what makes Milwaukee relevant if they can get there is getting a more reliable defensive product, whether that comes from him or other places, you know, changing around their centers. So I think it's it's certainly possible, but, you know, I understand the kind of restrained, the restrained or skepticism from Dan, because it is hard to say that when it's been, not only was it not really in the NBA, but it's been a couple of years. Yeah, he, I mean, he's he was bad on defense. I don't know that that's necessarily going to improve. I mean, I think I'm more going to enjoy watching him from an offensive standpoint then that, all right, he's going to be like some amazing player this year because of those weaknesses on, on the boards and on defense. Well, well, the flip side of the of it is the things, Nate, you're, that you're excited about, you think he can do well. Like, I also think he can do well because he hasn't shown in the NBA that he can't, and there were signs coming out of college. For me, it's just more a, a little bit of a hesitancy because he hasn't shown it. But he hasn't shown a lot of like reason to believe he won't. And I also think we did a nice job there of making sure Henry Ellenson is not the most discussed player on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so so another another guy that I think warrants mentioning, though I think all three of us are really high on him, is KCP, because he is a very talented defender, and I think the the Pistons have the right kind of tools to make him useful on that end. And if he can become more consistent offensively, they're not asking him to do a whole heck of a lot. If he can do better at what he what he is tasked with, he could become a, a really significant player, and we all expect the Pistons to do better this year. So I think that could help him as well. I wonder if it's possible if I'm the lowest on KCP of the three of us. I mean, his, his outside shooting, his three-point shot just has not been consistent, and, and that's a problem. Uh, I like what he brings defensively, but but when you are shooting 31% on three pointers, even though he's getting up a, a decent number of them, and I just you know that that's a problem for a shooting guard who who by a, all accounts seems to have the stroke to do better. And I think a lot of this is a confidence issue. But now we're going into year four, and you know some of the shakiness that you attribute to him just being a young player that becomes much less of an excuse. The other thing about him too that I think people underrate as a weakness is he just never assists anybody Mm -hmm. like he is just not a a good passer has not shown that at all in his career Mm -hmm. doesn't get to the line either while it while it of course there are more things that are important to offense dan as somebody who is who is following this team closely if you had to set a line in the on his three-point shooting percentage to say it would concern me if it was still lower than blank this year what would that be it would concern me if it's still below 36 percent now there's a lower bar where you know if he's around 34 like you're like okay we, you can live with that with his defense and that's a step up from last year and he's on the right track like you can yeah. live with that but i'm still looking and, and his volume that. too his volume too is important just because he is respected as a shooter he can heat up and just being willing to take those shots i mean he's been in the top 15 i think in three pointers 
uh, the last two years. I think even that, just the amount that he's able to get off, if not necessarily make, still has its own value for a team that can be challenged for spacing at times. Agreed. One other Pistons question, Dan. Is Boban going to be more of a novelty? or like I'm just trying to figure out how their center rotation is going to work if Lure is going to play center, which is what I expect. You so use Dan- the right term. It's curio. <laughs> That's what KP calls a curio. Will uh, will he be more of a curio? So Stan Van Gundy was remarkably open about this, that he expects Aaron Baines to opt out next year and get offers that are more than his early bird rights. And because the Pistons will be capped out, they won't be able to keep him. So they look at Boban. His primarily use, primary use is going to be the backup center in 2017-18. I think he's good enough where he could challenge Aaron Baines and, and sort of overtake Baines's role uh, as the center you want to use against stronger centers and lure can get some minutes as the, as the center you want to use against weaker centers and against some two big lineups, lure can play power forward. Uh, but I essentially think there's one role between Baines and uh, Boban this year. And I think Baines definitely comes in as the incumbent for that role. Uh, but I think Boban's talented enough to get it. But I think the Pistons are looking at Boban as primarily Baines's replacement next season. I, I would love to make Stan Van Gundy a bet that I think he'll be either 30 or 31 next year that 30-year-old Aaron Baines does not get a salary starting <laughs> at above 175% of the over $6 billion that he's making this year. I, I, I would like to make that bet for Stan. I think that the other question with Baines is, if of course I'm not Stan Van Gundy, and there are lots of things that would be different with this team, but if you give him the backup center role at the start of the season, I would be chomping at the bit to get ready to try to sell to sell if you get a little bit high on him just because you already have the replacements on and getting some more wings or you know point guard whatever you want to do if they don't I think they they plan on having Ish there for a while but. They can do, you basically use his value, let's say, in almost any other way, and it'll be provide more utility to them than having another center. Yeah, that's a good point. And that, that's along the lines of what I was going to say was it's also possible that Van Gundy was just being nice by saying, like, oh, we think that Aaron Baines will opt out and definitely get more than than his early bird rights when the reality of it is potentially that they either plan to use him in a trade or they just won't want to re-sign him Next yeah, they want. For maybe they cost. want him to opt out. I think it's more likely than not, in fact, that he would opt in. I think he'll opt out. Well, and then then you just trade him to someone with cap space because at that point he might be useful to somebody. Well, if he's that useful to somebody, he'll probably opt out. That's a good point. Uh, anything else you guys want to discuss? Are there any other slow Pistons backup centers that we can really dig into? <laughs> oh, Drummond's a starter. Uh, yeah, not, no. is Drum- Drummond's not he's slow. Not, no, he's not slow. He's just big. <laughs> they'll they'll eventually get more. They'll they'll sign somebody for their fifteenth man. Should we just like discuss like Aaron Gray's career for a moment? Maybe <laughs> Joel or... Anthony. <laughs> no, Joel Anthony was that's the one NBA attribute that he had was foot speed, basically. Maybe yeah, but not not speed. last year. Not when he was with the Pistons. <laughs> oh, good times. I'm just impressed you saw him on the court enough to even like make that evaluation. I'm just kind of assuming because of his age. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, you know, you know, Dan is—he's locked on the Pistons. You know, he knows all of this. Well, he wasn't doing the podcast last year, though. Now this year, he will be able to tell you. Oh yeah, here, Dan. Let's—is Darren Hilliard any good? Is he going to play it all this year? So Darren Hilliard and Reggie Bullock, I think, will be competing for a backup shooting guard spot that may or may not exist. 
uh, if the Pistons stretch the rotation to nine, they're compete or stretch it to ten, they're competing for that tenth spot. But they're also competing against a nine-man rotation. Darren Hilliard, he's all right. Uh, he's a little bit more of a dynamic ball handler and passer than it seemed. It seemed he'd be more of a three and D guy, uh, but he's just a little more versatile than I thought he'd be. Noted. Well, thank you guys so <laughs> thank you guys so much for taking the time. Wait, wait, no, do, we still have more uh, Pistons deep roster guys to discuss. Do, do, don't, 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 don't take it away from us. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Thanks again to Nate and Dan for taking the time. You can, of course, listen to the Dunked On Basketball podcast, which Nate is doing, and I am often on as well, though not as much this current month. And you can, of course, follow Nate on Twitter at. Nate Duncan NBA, N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-N-B-A. And you can read Dan Feldman at NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, and you can listen to the Locked On Pistons podcast that he's doing for this season, which is very exciting. You can, of course, follow him on Twitter as well at Dan Feldman NBA, D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. It's been nice to have a little bit of time, not off, let's say, but just a little bit slower because can catch up on things and get a sense of the next season. I have a bunch of stuff that will be coming out in the near future and, of course, working on new things as well and hopefully adding some substantial material to Real GM CBA Encyclopedia. About a week ago, I wrote a thing on my path as a sports writer at this point in advice, and I wanted that to function. It's on Real GM as, you know, a little bit of a a guide for people who are who are interested in this, and also I get asked that question kind of a lot, and it's better to have it all in one place than to have it in various things, and so I will, if you ask me that question moving forward, that is what I will send you. I will, I will send you a link to that, because I'm not going to really go through it, especially with the frequency. I can't really do that. One thing I will note, I mention all the time on here, that if you send me something on Twitter at Danny LaRue or to MBA at gmail.com, that I promise that I will read it and that I will respond if I can. That is still true. That will always be true. However, that does not apply to reading other pieces and submissions. And the reason for that and why I want to be candid about it is that's just way too much of a time commitment. So I will read an email response, but you know, if you get these three and 4,000 word pieces or even something shorter just by the volume that I get, I do appreciate it. And I will read some of it, but I, I'm not promising that. But I will read emails and I, I've been responding to a lot, I've actually been digging out some of my backlog, which has been exciting. And it's, you know, we're about a month away from the start of preseason and a month and a half or so away from things really kicking into gear and teams having to make those final roster decisions. So there will be more of the division capsules left. We are now halfway through. And so if you haven't listened to the Atlantic and the Pacific, the Atlantic was with Tim Bontemps, Pacific, Tim Bontemps and Jared Weiss. Pacific was with Kevin Pelton and Ben Golver. Those have come out over the last couple of weeks. Be doing some of those, of course, in this intervening time. Have a couple other podcasts that are in the offing. One that I'm excited about. I'm not going to, as many of you know, I don't reveal my guests ahead of time. But if you look through my history around this time a year ago, there is a podcast that I was excited to do and will be doing again, hopefully. So that that's always a lot of fun for me. And, you know, just trucking along with everything else. So if you want to keep up with me, Twitter at Danny LaRue, Facebook, Danny LaRue NBA. And then you can also just take a look at the outlets, the Sporting News, the Athletic, Real GM, and everything else that I do. And there will be more announcements in the near future, which is, of course, always exciting. There are also, of course, some things that you can do to support the podcast that I really appreciate. Number one is 
Go to blueapron.com slash realgm. You get three free meals, including free shipping. I believe in the product. I wouldn't sell it as hard as I do if, if I felt any other way. It is a great way of building cooking confidence. That's blueapron.com slash realgm. You can also check out, I mentioned it last week, Athletes Collective. It's a great apparel company, and you could put in the promo code realgm, and you can get 15% off any order that you make there, your first order with them. And also, just like any other podcast, it's great if you download every episode, because that's really how the metrics are done. Leave a rating, leave a review, and if there are people you know that you think would like it, mention it to them. And of course, that's true with Real Jam, it's true with Dunked On and anything else, because we do reach a wonderfully large amount of people, but it's hard to do promotion, especially when you're not a part of a larger conglomerate. So... I really do appreciate those who, who take the time to do that, and it has been a lot of fun. It was great to really put some time in on writing my path, and I'm so appreciative of everyone who helps make that possible. I, I In the piece, I talked about it a little bit, but I called sports writing the greatest hobby in the world for a long time. I started covering the league in 2009, and it didn't really become a career for me until April of 2015 or thereabouts, and... I was happy with it as a hobby. It was a really wonderful thing to do, but to be able to take it to another level has been an absolute joy, and I am incredibly thankful and appreciative for all of the people who make that possible, from my superiors at every organization, especially Chris Rayner at Real GM, to all of the listeners, because that support, it, it really does matter in getting, you know, getting positive emails, getting positive Facebook messages, and things like that. It helps just, you know, sometimes days are grind, some, some days are better than others, and it, it always does really help. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. It's time to get outdoors and make your holiday weekend one to remember. And there's no better place to get ready than Cabela's. Get 30% off all Cabela's camp kitchens, furniture, and cots. $100 off a Ruger American Bolt Action Rifle with Vortex Scope Combo after sale and mail-in rebate. 15% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. And $20 off Winchester USA bulk handgun ammo. Hurry in and gear up for Labor Day weekend at Cabela's. Labor Day. It's time to get outdoors and make your holiday weekend one to remember. And there's no better place to get ready than Cabela's. Get 30% off all Cabela's camp kitchens, furniture, and cots. $100 off a Ruger American Bolt Action Rifle with Vortex Scope Combo after sale and mail-in rebate. 15% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. And $20 off Winchester USA bulk handgun ammo. Hurry in and gear up for Labor Day weekend at Cabela's. Look out in the street there. You know what you don't see? My car, because I had to sell it to pay the lawyer I hired when I got busted for drunk driving. You know what else you don't see? My girlfriend, who decided that a guy with no car and no license and no money was no fun. And hey, you know what else you don't see? You don't see me leaving for work in the morning, because I missed so much time with court and everything that I got fired. 
drive sober or get pulled over. Paid for by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Labor Day. It's time to get outdoors and make your holiday weekend one to remember. And there's no better place to get ready than Cabela's. Get 30% off all Cabela's camp kitchens, furniture, and cots. $100 off a Ruger American Bolt Action Rifle with Vortex Scope Combo after sale and mail-in rebate. 15% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. And $20 off Winchester USA bulk handgun ammo. Hurry in and gear up for Labor Day weekend at Cabela's.